0: When I say animation, you might think of something like this
1: day my
2: prince will come.
0: day will come. Or this <laughs> Or even this. Get out of here
3: now! What? Leave before it gets dark. You've got to get across the river. Go! I'll distract them! Mommy!
0: No! But the world of animation is huge, and it includes a whole lot of things you might not expect.
2: Visual effects is a form of animation because you're manipulating things. And I think after movies such as Lord of the Rings, the industry realized this is a moment in time where it's no longer, what can we make, but it's more like, what should we make? We can make anything now.
0: I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, a peek into the world of animation. Later in the show, Watching movies can bring people together, but so can making movies. The the, the beauty is art brings
4: people together who have, you know, nothing to do with each other at first. It just seems to neutralize their differences. But first,
0: Aindow teaches animation at Virginia State University, and he says that animation doesn't just mean drawn movies or cartoons. It's a lot bigger than that.
2: Well, for me, animation is actually anything that moves other than live action film. Um, traditionally, yes, it is the hand-drawn. That's what I was introduced to. My first animation that I've ever watched was in Vietnam, and that was Snow White. I don't think I totally grasp what it was until I came to America, and um, I was at a refugee camp in California, and... I remember watching Bugs Bunny. Now, I didn't know it was Bugs Bunny. I just knew I was watching this thing, and even though I didn't speak the language, I was laughing and really enjoying it. The idea of how you can communicate visually without basically understanding kind of the language or any other context other than visual, that's animation to me.
0: Are there animators still doing the hand-drawn sketches, or is it just all done on a computer now?
2: I think there was a time when everybody thought, especially once Toy Story was a big hit, that animation would automatically switch to 3D. But no, people don't care if it's 2D or 3D as long as it's a good story and it's well-made. And, you know, sometimes things work much better in 2D than 3D. For instance... The Simpsons have been around forever, and they've done two D. And sometimes you can draw things digitally, but it's still hand drawn. But when you try to make it look three D, it looks really odd. It actually looks really frightening. Uh, you know, imagine what South Park would look like if you try to make that three D. It would look really weird. Uh, <laughs> which yeah. Is, yeah. So there are some stories that are more conducive to a certain style.
0: It's so interesting how animation can be everything from some slapstick humor to the erotic, Mm -hmm. but also you can illustrate anything you want and do it beautifully and do it engagingly.
2: Yes. You know, there's so many different genres now to animation, especially if you get into the whole anime market. Unfortunately, most of the stuff they import to America are what they think will sell, and I, I hate to say it, it's either very childish or more on the adult side. But there's a huge, huge middle ground of artwork and animation that would appeal to a huge market if they just let it in. Um, It's like comic books in this country. They are so hung up on superheroes with tights and they all look good and stuff, but they don't try to humanize them more and give them more flaws and, and things that we can relate to, unlike the... Asian stuff, like the, the Japanese manga and anime. They tend to have storylines that are very humanistic. Some stories are kind of rough, like animation um, that could be kind of rough to watch.
0: Do you mean animation that's too sexual or too graphic or violent?
2: Oh, no. It's it's more like the subject matter's Grave of the Fireflies come to mind. It's It starts off with all these dead children. And it's basically about how these two children parents were killed during the bombing of Tokyo during World War II. So they were left to their aunt to kind of just abuse them. So they ran off to live in kind of a, I don't want to say a sewer, but it, it's, it's it's sort of like that. So it's not like a Disney movie where you got a happy village, you got a song, you got a princess. <laughs> And then in the end, she finds her prince and live happily ever. Um, they tend to be f- more realistic, and um, the subject matter can be pretty tough.
0: Are you seeing any movement that way in the United States where more people are clamoring for less sanitized, disney versions of animation?
2: Well, I think Pixar has always created a bar because their motto is, story is king. Not only young children, but usually adults can really relate to them. Especially if you've seen movies like uh, Up. There's a a whole segment, a montage of the couple getting old together, uh, then the wife getting sick, and then ultimately dying. And I remember being in the audience with my wife and hearing all the mothers in the audience sniffling. (laughs) I'm like... That's amazing.
0: There's been a long tradition of making animation on two levels, humorous repartee for the adults and just great sight gags for the kids.
2: Yes, and you see that with Pixar. I think they've they've gotten it somewhat down to a science. Another individual that I admire a lot is uh, Miyazaki. Uh, he's the Japanese equivalent of, uh, I guess, would be Disney. Right. And um, a, a lot of his movies are also very... Uh, relatable it's always a character who starts off maybe not so well liked, but in the end they, they kind of figure things out and um, they might kind of become a better person um, the biggest movie that he made in my opinion was Spirited Away where it's about a little girl who might be kind of a it comes off as a spoiled brat or just kind of bratty but throughout the movie she starts to develop more character and she starts to actually care more about others than herself. And in the end, you see how she's gotten, character-wise, much stronger and better.
0: Who else do you admire?
2: Disney, of course, because of Snow White, because before that, no one believed that anybody would pay money to go into a movie theater and watch a cartoon. And, of course, John Lasseter, because Toy Story, he's the one who decided, I'm going to try to do an animation using totally 3D and a lot of people like didn't understand what that meant and if you didn't know he was he actually worked for Disney and they fired him (laughs) because they didn't know what they had or what he was talking about you know after they fired him Pixar picked him up and because of Toy Story once again that was another moment in time where people were like wow this is we never understood that this could happen.
0: Has there been a game changer since Pixar's Toy Story?
2: Um, not animation in the sense that people would understand. Um, visual effects is a form of animation, right? Because you're manipulating things. And I think after movies such as Lord of the Rings, I think the industry realized. This is a moment in time where it's no longer what can we make, but it's more like what should we make. So I think the handcuffs of visual effects have been taken off, where you can make anything now. And I think the the biggest thing that happened, I would say, the next one after Toy Story might be, in my opinion, Avatar. Yes. Um. Because that was the moment where um, they utilized the technology as far as they can push it. And that movie definitely created a benchmark of like, well, okay, we can make anything now. Because they
0: went so beautifully and seamlessly between real human forms and animated versions.
2: Yes. It's one of those things where um, the technology had to catch up with the director's vision. uh, Because James Cameron had... I believe he said he, he's been working on that movie for 14 years or so, mm-hmm. and he had to wait until the technology caught up to do what he wanted for the audience to see.
0: I you have a wonderful story about how you first started drawing, and it happened when you were quite young, and it just come to America after the fall of Saigon.
2: I guess I was very fortunate because my family, my uncle, the American uncle who brought us over, had a house in Vienna, Virginia. So I was put into a classroom in the third grade, not speaking a single word of English, and I had to figure out a way to communicate. So I started sketching things on a sketchbook and would point to it, and a student would tell me what it was. And the teacher actually gave me time with a few individual students that would sit with me, and I guess that was the earliest version of pictionary ever <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah uh,
2: and you know one of the great things about being a child is you don't really have a gauge of bad or good. you're not worried about how things look. you you're drawing because for me at the time it was a necessity it's this is my way of communicating, yeah. So I wasn't worried about, like, how good it looked. My main concern is if they see it, do they understand enough to say what it is? (laughs) But the crazy thing is the more you draw, the better you get. So I started getting better and better. Um, And before I knew it, I actually learned two languages, English and a a visual form of communication. Yes. And I think that's, in a weird way, how I kind of fell in love with drawing. I wasn't planning on it or anything like that. It's it just one of those things. Um, like someone once said, uh, "It's passion is not something you start off with. It's something that you develop. And eventually you realize, oh my gosh, it's a passion. <laughs> and I, I feel that's the way how I came into drawing, or some people say art, or whatever they want to call it.
3: <laughs>
0: that's great. Aindel, uh, thank you for talking with me.
2: Well, thank you.
0: I'm Doe teaches animation at Virginia State University. Coming up next, pictures of climate change in Virginia, China, and Mexico. This spring, the student film festival at Northern Virginia Community College featured films made by young people from around the world. The festival was founded by Lucy Gabra egzabir who teaches cinema at Northern Virginia Community College. Lucy also founded an international film competition called Films Without Walls. And this year she got her colleague involved too. Christine Bozarth is an environmental science professor. Lucy and Christine joined me to talk about the student film competition. Lucy, tell me about Films Without Walls. What gave you the idea to create films between students in America and students in Ethiopia and other parts of the world?
4: Well, I did a Fulbright in Ethiopia and I taught film uh, there. My film students in Ethiopia, when I came back, I uh, connected them with my U.S. Uh, film students. And uh, out of that collaboration, they, together they made a film called Final Exam.
0: I heard that that was a very heartwarming piece. Yeah, it was very
4: powerful on many levels. One is that it showed the universality of the theme we treated, which was about uh, student's life in general, a student in the U.S. as well as in Ethiopia, struggling not just to get through his education, but also stepping into his home life and being forced to be an adult because of the circumstances he was facing. What are some of the moments in the film that touched you? You know, the universality of the problems that they were facing was really touching. And it was the whole point of the collaboration was to give U.S. students' perspective that even though they are in worlds apart, they share similar uh, ups and downs, I guess. that the, the beauty is art brings people together who have, you know, nothing to do with each other at first. It just seems to neutralize their
0: differences. This year for Films Without Walls, you put out a call for students around the world who may want to create short films on the theme of climate change. Why climate change?
4: Well, this is after the, when the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Accord. Uh, that was alarming. And uh, I wanted to involve the students in not only exploring the problem, but holding kind of a mirror to society. And the best way to hold a mirror to society is when the youth holds that mirror, because everybody's a parent, everybody's a big brother, big sister, etc.,
0: Which of the nations responded? Which students from around the world submitted something? So we partnered
4: with um, students from China and Oaxaca, Mexico, on this uh, particular partnership. But we ended up getting students from uh, Iran uh, submitting films about climate change and the destruction, uh, the human uh, contribution to that destruction and various countries submitted uh, films on that particular theme.
0: Christine, did you see all those short films from elsewhere?
6: I did. We had a very nice film festival, and we saw short films from all over the world, and many of them had to do with climate change. Mexico's film I was particularly impressed with. It was sort of a, a vision of a more or less dystopian future where people that go to the grocery store are presented with foods that are in sort of block form, they're not fruits and vegetables as we know them today, and then a little boy ends up going behind the scenes at the grocery store, and he sees a a grandmother back there, and she's tending a garden as we would recognize it today, and she's growing all different types of fruits and vegetables, of course the little boy doesn't know what those fruits and vegetables are, and so she explains to him of sort of this is how it used to be, these are the amazing fruits and vegetables we used to eat.
1: Sucede que pues
4: no nos habíamos portado muy bien con nuestro planeta. Es por eso que desaparecieron los vegetales, las frutas, los
0: alimentos frescos. A mí me gusta la berrita. ¿Quieres probar? Esto es un mago. Huele
1: rico.
6: ¿Quieres
4: probarlo? Pruébalo. Well, the film with China. Um, Is also deals with climate change, but an interesting take on it is that since I don't think they were allowed to treat it very openly, they kind of used a very indirect way of dealing with climate change, and it was about a girl who never saw snow where she lives, um, falls in love with this boy who promises to take her somewhere where there is snow, and um, he goes off and gets infected by uh, some kind of virus that ends up killing him. But at the end, snow falls where she is.
1: Hello. I'm glad to meet You tell me is The
4: At first, when we frankly saw that film, we were like, okay, where is the climate change theme here? But then we later discovered that they cannot openly uh, talk about it, so they had to kind of indirectly hint at it. And that was very interesting. (laughs) Isn't that powerful? That was very powerful. And that kind of shows you um, art thrives the most in uh, countries with the most repressive regimes because they have to find a way of communicating their message in a very outside the box kind of thinking you know very indirectly uh, the, the use of metaphors etc so that was very interesting for us mm-hmm. and they uh, the delegation from the school came actually to represent the film all the way from China just for the festival so that was
0: heartwarming. What about the film from the American students, your own students? What did they create?
6: The film is called Impact, and the story is of a young college student who is sort of apathetic towards climate change. She doesn't really understand how it impacts her and what she could do about it. And through a series of dreams, she steps back in time and peeks into classrooms from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and she can sort of witness the evolution of science and the public's understanding of climate change through those different classrooms. At the end of the film, she decides that it's time for her to take action and that one person can make a difference. And she approaches the professor, who she had been observing through the past decades. She approaches the professor and uh, decides to help.
0: You actually played the role of the professor in the film? I did. How was it? Well, it was my
6: first time acting. Uh, I, I honestly, I didn't think it would be too difficult because I already am an environmental science professor. But of course, I knew nothing about acting, and so the student director had a lot to teach me about accessing my emotions. And, uh, and the professor character in the film is actually, you know, she starts out as I am personally when I teach a class—very enthusiastic, very excited. But over the decades, the apathy of the students in the face of this tremendous problem of climate change uh, gets her down. It almost breaks her heart towards the end. And she's only buoyed up at the last minute by the hope she sees in the young college student who offers her help.
4: And if I may add to what Christine just beautifully said, uh, basically this young girl uh, and the students in the classroom represent us, society. And the young girl who plays uh, the student, uh, the apathetic student, is also guided by a very younger even girl who takes her, she, she serves as her guide through the decades in the past. And this younger girl represents the younger generation, who at the end faces her and says, it's time to wake up. Allow me to play this, uh, the clip when uh, the young girl who represents the younger generation comes appears to Dorothy and takes her by the hand and leads her to the decade of the 70s. The
5: Middle East war produced developments all over the world today. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. They will reduce oil production by 5% a month until the Israelis withdraw from occupied territories. If the Arab countries keep that pledge, it would reduce their production by almost 50% in one year.
6: Last week's OPEC trade embargo has put our country into a sort of national panic. A dependence on oil is problematic for the United States. It's important we keep our consumption of it as low as we can. What do you do when you run out of fuel for your precious Mustang? I mean, there's always going to be gas. Yeah, we could just ride bikes. I hope you mean your motorcycle. So in that clip, you could hear the professor trying to explain the urgency of the OPEC oil crisis to the students. The students are very apathetic. The one student uh, is reading a muscle car magazine. She's not interested at all in doing anything to curb her oil usage. Uh, She's you know, sort of talking back to the professor and shoots down immediately another student's suggestion that they should ride bikes instead of riding driving in cars or riding motorcycles. And so you can see that some of the students are not taking it seriously. They do not understand the urgency of the issue.
0: What is your experience as a teacher? Are you constantly finding yourself trying to light a fire of activism under students about being the change they want to see in the world regarding climate change.
6: Uh, yeah, in a way, uh, when I have when we talk about science, environmental science issues that are hot button issues like climate change, and the reason they're hot button issues is not because the science is undecided or because there's a lot of controversy in the science, uh, any more than there normally is in any science topic. the uh, The issue is just that society in recent years has decided to be almost anti-fact and reject science in many ways. And so I do get a lot of students that have been influenced um, by politics, by their friends, by whatever culture they're in, to ignore science and to think that climate change is just a buzzword or that climate change is something that comes from one political party, when in reality it is a theory based on a tremendous amount of data, Uh, and so hopefully I can get across to them the evidence that we have that climate change is occurring, the evidence that it is being caused by humans, and the repercussions of that, what we have to do to either mitigate climate change or adapt to it.
0: What have you found they tend to be most responsive to as you're teaching about climate change?
6: Well, as a scientist myself, I wish it was the facts. I wish they got excited about, look at this ice core data, look at this pollen, ancient pollen data that we have. But in reality, what they tend to be most impressed by are um, the evidence that they can see in front of them when they hear about the increasing strength and frequency of hurricanes, when they see that there's coastal flooding happening somewhere that they might have visit visited, like in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, in Miami. When uh, show them pictures of islands in the South Pacific that are being inundated with seawater, uh, island nations that are likely to cease to exist in the near future. I think that that helps to drive home the message that this is actually happening. It's impacting people just because you might not see it in your everyday life as someone in a developed nation who's very buffered from changes in the environment. It doesn't mean it's not affecting other people and that it will someday affect you.
0: At Northern Virginia Community College, are most of your students taking this environmental science course majors or taking a required science class? They're
6: mostly non-science majors. They're mostly taking the required science class, uh, and they're scared to take biology, chemistry, or physics. They think that my class is going to be easy. (laughs) I don't think that it is. Uh, And uh, so that is actually especially exciting for me because I have a lot of experience dealing with other scientists and science students and science grad students. But I've had to learn a lot and always stay enthusiastic and stay on my toes to deal with students who might not be interested in science at all some students who actually dislike science, definitely students who are afraid of math, <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully get those students to understand how science works and to get them excited about the environment.
0: Well, it's exciting for me to hear you say that because I realize, thank goodness for you both, thank goodness that drama students and students who are not interested or afraid of science are getting science in this very real a cultural and creative way. Lucy and Christine, thank you for sharing your project with me on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah. Thank it's you. great to be here. Lucy Gabra-Egzabur is a professor of cinema, and Christine Bozarth is a professor of biology and environmental science at Northern Virginia Community College. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. The eighth season of The Walking Dead recently finished up on AMC. The horror series about a worldwide zombie apocalypse is one of the most watched television shows of the past few years.
5: Rick, pick up the ax. Not making a decision is a big decision. You really wanna see all these people die? You will. You will see every ugly thing.
0: It seems like every season there's a scene viewers decide has finally crossed the line on violence. Thomas Britt used to watch The Walking Dead, but after a specially gruesome skull-bashing scene, he decided to stop. He's a professor in the film and video program at George Mason University, and he teaches a course on ethics. Thomas, why did you stop watching? Hadn't The Walking Dead always been violent?
3: Right. So the very same thing that I would say I appreciated about it in its early seasons became the factor that made me tune out. And that was in the early days, there was always a concern on the show and amongst the characters about where do we draw the line between what it is to be human versus what it is to be a human in this environment. But what's begun to happen is the human villains are the characters most played up by the series in a way that makes the viewers root for what's the bad guy going to do next. The effect of The Walking Dead, as with shows like Game of Thrones, they've redefined what television is. And I think the effect it's had is that even network shows are trying to compete with the so-called edginess of the cable fare, so that the downward effect has been that everything seems more violent because suddenly a one-hour drama on a network doesn't seem as exciting to a younger audience that has seen a lot of this more graphic cable content.
0: So is violence a draw, or is violence something that turns people off the way you were recently turned off by The Walking Dead?
3: I think it's both. There is an audience out there that wants more, more, more. Because if you look at the areas of the brain that are activated when you watch, it's not that these things tend to get satisfied after you've seen one episode. So I think that is why I would recommend that people use caution and to really think critically about what they're watching, what in them is that attempting to satisfy, and why is it that they go on to a next episode after after they're done with uh, the current episode.
0: How do we measure gratuitous violence? Is there a gauge that we could rely on to help sort of test out the acceptability of a level of violence?
3: Sometimes it's easier to do if a violent act or a sexual act, if it interrupts the narrative and it doesn't seem to have any other function within the plot than to turn your stomach or to titillate or to exploit somebody, some actor or actress, then you could probably say in objective terms, it was gratuitous.
0: Isn't that all horror film, though? (laughs) It's just designed to excite, appall, surprise us.
3: I would say that's not all horror film. I would say there are certain traditions within the horror genre, like slasher films, which if you watch them and you continue watching them, you are agreeing to the way they operate, which is who's going to die next. It's almost beside the point to criticize them for gratuitous content because they really only exist to slash the characters down.
0: What about other countries outside of the U.S. in terms of portraying violence on the screen?
3: I I guess it doesn't get written about as much anymore, but in the 90s, maybe from the 80s, there was a series of films in Hong Kong called Category 3 Films, and those were films that were created for working-class audiences to watch revenge scenarios play out on screen. These are films that are tied to the experience of being frustrated that you can't advance in life. All these divisions and tensions that were playing out between Hong Kong and Mainland and Beijing get filtered into these films, but they have the most restrictive or the most adult rating there is in the Hong Kong rating system, which is Category 3, which children are absolutely not supposed to watch these films. But I would say, I don't know how healthy it is to create a series of films that allow people to imagine their own vengeance. I think if you watched enough of those, you might be motivated to think that is the only way out of this social Darwinism.
0: What about mainland China? Is there much of a check on violence for films produced in China or, conversely, in films allowed to be shown in mainland China?
3: Yes. So I think that's probably the most timely topic because China's influence on Hollywood is increasing by the day. Hollywood is depending on the money to get their films made. So what you see is Hollywood will make a China-exclusive cut of a Hollywood blockbuster. That version will only show in China. So in order to screen on their screens, what Hollywood filmmakers do is sometimes make big cuts to the scripts and the films that they would produce. So, for instance... Suicide Squad, and Ghostbusters, neither of those received a release in China. And you would say, well, why wouldn't a film like Ghostbusters, which is a, here it was, I think, a PG-13 comedy, really, why would that be unacceptable? In China, one of the big sticking points for the state regulators is that you cannot have the ghosts. You can't have the suggestion of an afterlife. If Ghostbusters can't be shown merely because it involves ghosts, even at the most comic level, then you see that they do take seriously the rule to not have any depiction of the afterlife, no suggestion that there's anything beyond this.
0: Do you think we should actually be teaching students media literacy, that we should teach students to judge sources for accuracy, trust, and to critically review film and TV?
3: I do. I think it's more important than ever. As we all know, the internet really changes and negates any attempt to regulate content through things like television screens because when each kid has a device in his or her hand, it's up to them. If they have any degree of independence with that device, they are going to be deciding what they watch regardless of what their parents want. So I think it's more important than ever that things like media literacy, as well as an overall foundation of what are your principles? What are your values? What are your morals? What do we believe in this family? That kind of question. If you create enough of that foundation, then when the the child has enough independence to decide what they're gonna watch, hopefully they'll filter it through those questions.
0: Thomas Britt teaches in the film and video program at George Mason University. Coming up next, how German detective novels differ from ours. Detective Chief Inspector Stefan Derek doesn't like violence. You rarely see him with a weapon in his hand, and he rarely raises his voice. He's cool. He's calm. And he's the face of German detective fiction. If you flip through the pages of any German pulp novel, you're unlikely to find the violence and hard-bitten detectives of Dirty Harry or Graham Greene. Why is that? Well, if you ask Bruce Campbell, he's a fan of German detective novels and a professor of German studies at the College of William and Mary. He says it all boils down to German politics and memory. Bruce, how did German detective fiction get so political?
1: Uh, Way back in the 60s, People wanted to change the world. And there was a wonderful pair of Swedish writers, May Svalu and Per Wallu. They started writing detective fiction set in Sweden as a way of criticizing modern Swedish society. What they saw as a turn towards capitalism and overconsumption and stuff like that. And so every young German student that I knew when I was doing my research... That would, you know, they'd hand me that book and they'd say, you've got to read this. And it wasn't Marx. It was Serold and Walu*. And that colored an entire generation. There were a lot of young Germans who were politically active, who wanted to change Germany, who were very critical of the German past, which they felt had not been fully dealt with. And so they started writing detective fiction of their own to criticize German society, to point out problems, and to show a path on how to fix things. Do you see a difference between the
0: American detective novels and the German?
1: I do. There are some key differences, and the biggest of all is the German past. You can't write a detective in Germany the way you can in the U.S. You can ask an American, a British person, a French person, To identify with a detective who is two-fisted, brutal, violent, that's okay. It doesn't work in Germany. And the reason is, historically, the police in Germany were intimately tied up with Nazi crimes. And anyone who knows anything about the past in Germany, and that's anybody who speaks German, can't simply be asked to identify blindly with a detective who even smells like a Nazi, who looks like a Nazi, who acts like a Nazi. And so writers of detective fiction in Germany have to go to really great lengths to show that their detectives are not Nazis.
0: Give me an example of one such character where the writer has obviously softened or blurred the edges.
1: Okay. Well, the easiest way to do it is to have a female detective. So, for example, a detective named Katharina Ledermacher is a woman, and she's very critical of an older generation of policemen who at that time actually had been Nazis or were trained under the Nazis. And unfortunately, that was a fact of life in West Germany, certainly, into the late 60s, early 70s. For the Germans, this is still fairly fresh, The generation who actually did this is still around. They're dying, but they're still there. They're still in families, and people feel not only a connection but a deep responsibility for it, and you have to give German society a lot of credit for that. But because there is so much historical knowledge about Nazi crimes, everyone knows that the police were deeply implicated First, the police helped the Nazis round up communists, and eventually they helped them round up Jews. Many policemen then became the foundation, in terms of personnel, of the Gestapo. And then entire units, military units of police, were put together during the war and used to kill Jews in large numbers in Poland and the Ukraine. People know this. So detective fiction in Germany is just not innocent. And that means you have to have a different kind of detective. Interestingly enough, there's a very recent vogue for historical detective fiction in Germany set in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, exactly the time when there were real Nazis around. I find this fascinating. It's as if an entire generation of writers, I know of at least 30, are deliberately trying to put their finger right where it hurts
0: but they're creating characters that are they're sort of reinventing their own grandparents
1: exactly exactly they're not they're not rewriting history they don't deny it but they're writing places for people with today's values people that they can look up to people like them so in a sense exactly right they're inventing a space for their own grandparents
0: So by contrast, give me examples of the kinds of detectives we know and love and would not be tolerated by the German public.
1: Uh, The best example is Dirty Harry. Actually, I showed a clip in a lecture just a couple weeks ago, and I was shocked again. Dirty Harry walks into a coffee shop, kills four black men, wounds a fifth, and then there's the standoff where he says, Make my day, punk. And I was looking at that and I was thinking, whose lives matter?
0: It's so interesting the way detective novels, which I think of as just rich escapism, you know, a delightful romp through a read, have such cultural weight.
1: Well, that's the thing. There are some things that you just can't escape. There's something in history we call memory studies, and it's it's less about what happened in the past, but more about how people remember what happened. This is a perfect example of how that memory of a certain past reaches out and colors all facets of society, from from minor fiction to grand politics. You know, The, the reason you can't write a Nazi-like detective in Germany is exactly the same reason why the Germans are so reluctant to send their troops into combat today. It's the weight of that past. It's that cultural memory.
0: Bruce Campbell is a professor of German studies at the College of William and Mary. Coming up next. Though people love to make fun of the screaming crowds and primitive special effects of a Godzilla movie, dozens of sequels have been made for a faithful audience.
5: Godzilla, king of the monsters, alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind, dotting the earth, crushing all before in a psychotic cavalcade of electrifying horror.
0: My next guest is Jason Barr, He wrote the Kaiju Film, a critical study of cinema's biggest monsters. He says Godzilla keeps returning to the big screen because it's an ever-evolving allegory. Jason Barr teaches English at Blue Ridge Community College. Jason, you write that the newest Godzilla film is much more than just monsters crushing cities. Tell me about the sort of genre of Godzilla. How many Godzilla movies have there been?
5: Well, up until this point in the newest release, there's been uh, 26 Godzilla films. The first one was released in Japan in 1954, and it was just called simply Godzilla, uh, or in Japan, Gohira, Um, and then it was recut and re-edited and released in the United States as Godzilla King of Monsters in 1956.
0: I read one reviewer said that original Godzilla film from 1954 was not just the best monster film he'd ever seen. He said it was the best window into post-war attitudes towards nuclear power. How so? I always think of Godzilla as just smashing cities.
5: Right. The first Godzilla film is uh, extraordinarily tragic in tone. When we think of Godzilla, a lot of people tend to think of camp. like He's going around battling other monsters and destroying cities. But the first film is really uh, a tragedy. Godzilla represents the sort of cruelties of the atomic bombing. He's a creature that's mutated from the fallout of the H-bomb testing that's been going on near Japan and he's a very forthright stand-in for nuclear aggression. What we see and some critics have noticed that Godzilla himself in that very first film is only destroying things almost by accident. He's sort of stumbling around, he's angry, he's upset, he looks confused. Um, and so in a lot of ways, Godzilla himself is sort of a tragic, unnatural creation. who doesn't understand his purpose, is in sort of a foreign environment, and is just there as an accident, essentially.
0: What were some of the more poignant scenes in the original Godzilla film, 1954?
5: Well, one of the uh, big scenes that a lot of people talk about is when um, the director, Ishiro Honda, takes the viewer into the uh nearby hospital where people are being treated from uh the attack that godzilla is is performing you see at one point in time a doctor looking at a concerned parent and sort of shaking his head no as he's holding a geiger counter over a child and the geiger counter of course is buzzing wildly um and it's a very somber scene at that moment because if you were to remove godzilla from the equation entirely and look just at that scene that would harken back to the emotions that existed immediately after World War II and the atomic bombings.
0: How did the Godzilla genre continue to evolve after that first film? Over time, did they become more and more political or less so?
5: For a lot of Godzilla films, there isn't much of a political commentary, uh, but there are others in which the political commentary is very pointed Uh, There were aspects of colonialism uh, where Japan and Great Britain, for instance, are both countries that are wrestling with the fall of their empires after World War II. You also see ideas of um, environmentalism as early as the 1970s where Godzilla battles a creature named Hedorah, who's in the United States known as the smog monster, uh, who gets more powerful by sort of hovering over smokestacks. And you also have a a lot of discussions of the role of the military in Japan from post-World War II onwards and where the military really fits into Japanese society. Later on, there's a a film that has probably the best title of the series, which is Giant Monsters All Out Attack um, in 2001. (laughs) And Godzilla is recast. Uh, He is the living embodiment of the Japanese war dead, For one of the first times in the franchise, he is the de facto bad guy. And you see throughout the film, the Japanese are sort of wrestling with the idea of how do we acknowledge World War II? He comes back basically because a lot of the younger Japanese had forgotten World War II almost entirely. And the whole point of that film is the understanding that once you forget that's when bad stuff really starts to happen.
0: Tell me about the newest Godzilla film. How is its political message different this time around?
5: Well, what's unusual about this film is that Godzilla literally evolves. He has three or four different forms. When he first appears, he's very sort of grotesque and can't even really stand. He just sort of crawls around on the pavement like a gigantic worm. Um, And then once they attack him, he goes away and evolves into a new problem, essentially. And there's one pivotal scene in the film where they have the opportunity to stop Godzilla, but the politicians decide not to do it because there are civilians that could be killed during the process. Um, and of course, they don't do it. Godzilla receives some damage. He goes away and metamorphoses again, but becomes even more powerful. And there's sort of an underlying sentiment that uh, some of the more right-wing politicians in Japan have picked up on that the old way of doing things won't work anymore. The old idea of just having military for only self-defense won't work anymore.
0: What are some of the political undertones that might find their way, do you think, into future Godzilla films?
5: We see with this current film, with Shin Godzilla, the prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, um, has sort of adopted that film as uh, propaganda, I guess I could say, a lighter form of propaganda for his desire to sort of recast the Japanese military as a more powerful organism in Japan. You're starting to see more Japanese people think maybe he's on to something that maybe we do need a more vigorous military, uh, a more aggressive stance in the world. And I think what we'll see is uh, a lot more wrestling with the role of politics and the Japanese military.
0: Well, Jason Barr, you've made me want to go see Godzilla for the first time ever. (laughs) Thank you for talking with me and with good reason.
5: All right. Thanks for having me.
0: That was Jason Barr, who teaches at Blue Ridge Community College. He's the author of The Kaiju Film, A Critical Study of Cinema's Biggest Monsters. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System. Using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. Smithfieldfoods.com With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quance, Elliot Majersic, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our interns are Georgiana Reed and Emily Hayes. Special thanks this week to Steve Clark at WCVE in Richmond. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to our website, withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.